0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Travel writer Porter Fox's latest adventure is a quest to rediscover America's other border, the fascinating but little-known northern one, a journey he recounts in his new book, Northland. He spent three years exploring 4,000 miles of the border between Maine and Washington, traveling by canoe, freighter, car, and foot. And uh, he weaves in his encounters with residents, border guards, Indian activists, and militia leaders to give a portrait of the Northland today, rocked by climate change, water wars, oil booms, and uh, border security. Porter Fox uh, joins us uh, for the hour to talk about Northland. Porter Fox, uh, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: We uh, talked a couple years ago about uh, your book on snow called uh, Deep, right? That's right. I
1: can't seem to get out of the uh, cold climate here.
0: <laughs> now, you grew up in uh, in this kind of cold climate, in Maine, right?
1: I did, yeah, in uh, northern Maine, um, kind of near Bar Harbor, uh, about halfway up the coast.
0: And you write about that. Uh, course, that's where you start your journey. Um, tell me a little bit about that. How was that uh, growing up in, the, in that area? And this is fairly near the border.
1: Yeah, it's pretty close to the border, and, and we used to summer at a lake um, that's about five miles from the border, and uh, you really notice um, kind of like border life when you get close uh, to the northern border. It's a very porous border. There's, uh, it's actually the busiest international border in the world with uh, around $2 billion in goods and services and 400,000 people crossing it every single day. Um, and you see that when you're up there you see um, loggers and uh, the timber industry cutting on one side milling on the other side shipping it back from you know the other side again um, you know you can cross over the border or you used to be able to cross over it quite easily um, there were there were always um, Canadians in my hometown growing up in the summer on their vacation and we would go on our vacations up the lakes up in um, you know up in canada so it's it was a really um it's really a kind of a cross-border community all the way from maine across to washington um i i noticed that it um and i have people living on both sides and and passing freely uh, back and forth
0: now if there's a border um you know running through land that that's going to I guess change the character, define the character of that that land. Maybe the people. What, uh, is that the case? And uh, and and how does it? Uh, I guess define the character of the people uh, in in the northern border.
1: Yeah, it, it it absolutely defines the land, and it's it's very interesting. Um, you know, I write about the history of the border in the book a lot, and kind of that is the history of the United States, and after the. American Revolution um, the British did not go back to Britain. they went to Canada and they had business partners um, in the colonies and then the, the young the United States uh, they had family um, back in the in the u uh, s and from the very beginning uh, that land that is in northern maine uh, northern New York Vermont New Hampshire all the way across to the Great Lakes, the Northern Plains, and and Montana, Idaho, and Washington, you know, it was always kind of um, settled on both sides of the line. And then they drew the line kind of um, down the middle. And at first, people didn't really abide by it. (laughs) They sort of just continued on with their business and whatnot. And and, and when it came to, you know, the, the kind of bureaucracy of, collecting taxes from these goods that were going back and forth over the border. Um, people did not like that very much. Um, and, and it's all the way through to, you know, church congregations are split by the border. Um, American and Indian reservations are split by the border. Um, there's a pulpwood factory in northern Maine that literally straddles a river, and half of it is in Canada and half of it is in Maine. Um, there's there's a lot of places like that and you know it, it, it makes for kind of an awkward situation in the post 9/11 years when that that border is really hardening very quickly
0: so that's that's where this journey began right uh, what 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 did you grew up near the border but what drew you back what uh, what was the impetus for this book
1: uh, it really was that that security issue. Um, out, a kind of uh, not out of nowhere. It was after the September 11th attacks that that very suddenly there was a five hundred percent increase in um, border agents along the northern border. Um, new ports of entry being built, uh, military grade radar, drones, motion detectors, remote cameras in the woods. You know, all of that came very quickly and. I, I heard a lot of, of folks talking about that and um, kind of when the idea to, to write something about the northern border uh, kind of came out, it was, like, you know, I, I, I had a, a very clear connection to it and a lot of people that I could talk to about it. So that is where the, the journey started. And I, I started in the east. I started actually at the easternmost point of, um, of the lower 48, which is um, it's up on West Quaddy Head. Northeastern Maine. Uh, And, you know, I started there because that's where the border started. I I literally started on the island where Samuel de Champlain founded the first colony up there. It was a French colony then, um, back when New France uh, sort of occupied where Canada is now. And as I worked west, um, I had the benefit of. Following the history of the border, which also worked west at about the same rate. Um, so, by the time I get to Washington, you know, we're, we're talking about um, the addition of Oregon Territory and the, and the final, uh, the creation of the final miles um, of that border.
0: Mm. Well, talk a little bit about that the creation of the border. Um, so, this is, you know, the. Let me start here. You, you say you quote a friend who uh, I can't remember exactly how he or she phrases it, but uh, in some ways the, the Northland, as they call it, little changed from 1776
1: to the 1970s. Yeah, that's a, a buddy of mine said that, and it was absolutely true. And then after after 1970, it started to change slowly, but but still, it it is a, a really rustic and kind of untouched tier of the United States that rarely makes the news. Um, uh, development is is very slow up there. Um, some of the largest roadless areas in the country, largest wildernesses, um, are there the Great Lakes. Uh, the northern border runs through four of the five Great Lakes, through Maine's North Woods, uh, the Northern Plains in North Dakota, Glacier National Park in Montana, North Cascades National Park in Washington. These are just Places that you can walk for miles and miles and see absolutely no trace of humanity. And, you know, it's kind of kind of hard to find that in, in the U.S. these days. So, um, you know, that was, um, that was a really interesting part of it. There's, there's an incredible statistic that only 10% of the U.S. population lives within 100 miles of its northern border. And in Canada, 90% of the country. Lives within a hundred miles of their southern border, um, so that kind of tells you a little something about the difference mm. between the two countries. There, mm.
0: well, what's uh, and this country called Northland, right? Um, or Highline, or you know, there's, there's several names.
1: Yeah, the, they call it the Northland. They call it the Highline, the Northern Tier. Um, you know, it, it's not the most kind of like publicly defined region. Um, in the U.S., um, but it's also it's similar to the Great Plains. Um, you know, part of my idea for writing the book um, came after reading Ian Fraser's terrific book Great Plains, in which he drives around um, this massive swath of the Midwest, writing about an area that you know really hadn't been written about very much, um, and just found this incredibly fascinating history there. and and I was lucky enough to, to dig up a, a really incredible history of, um, of this northern tier as well.
0: What makes this area different from the other parts of the country?
1: It's cold. Hmm. <laughs> it's truly cold. Um, and, and then extremely hot in the summertime. Um, hmm. North Dakota has officially the most extreme weather in the world in terms of temperature uh, swings and um wind speeds, um, tornadoes, and and um, incredible snowfall in the winter and flooding in the summer. It's, um, you know, it really the climate is is what defines it. And then, of course, as you know, climate defines many other things. Um, the ecology of the area, the way that people build their houses, the way that communities are laid out, what type of businesses, um, you know, work up there, like, it, it it really affects a lot of um, you know, the way uh, the way a region gets developed. So I wasn't totally sure, you know, when I started out that I would find places that that were very much like Northern Maine, and um, you know, I was really happy to find some similarities as I went across and really tie the region together. Mm.
0: You did find similarities, and i um, I'm guessing maybe. The people, the types of people who uh, are, I guess, attracted to the northern border, or or perhaps the communities that uh, that grew up there. Tell me about uh, the the people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's um you know what I found up there were these, you know, very very old and established ethnic communities, um, many of which um, had descended from the first settlers uh, in northern Maine, um, up around the Saint John Valley. There were there were a whole regions, towns that, that spoke French as their primary language. When I was in Minnesota, um, there's a, a huge Scandinavian populations um, uh, throughout that region. Um, you know, there, there were a lot of, uh, I found towns that were, you know, not exclusively, but, but primarily German when I was kind of coming up out of the, the Great Lakes and um, towards Minnesota and, and even on into uh, North Dakota. Um, you know, th- these are the Northland, was, it was one of the last regions that was settled in uh, America. Um, the, the Northwest Territory was one of the last unmapped and unexplored regions in the world uh, in the late 1700s. Um, and certainly before uh, Lewis and Clark went in there and, and um, Alexander McKenzie before them. Um, and, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, when when settlers were kind of moving in the immigrant trails across the country, um, one by one those trails kind of started angling farther north, um, the Bozeman Trail being one of the last of them. Um, and And after that, you know, massive settlement of millions of people moving west, um, you know, the, the Northland, again, was one of the last places where, where you could still, um, you know, find a spot to homestead.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the uh, politics of the border. And, uh, of course, we hear about the southern border. We don't hear as much about the northern border, but I'm sure that uh, there there is an effect at the northern border. Get into some of the history as well and uh, some of your travels. By the way, uh, talking about the cold, um, I understand that... Uh, People in Maine uh, say they have two seasons, winter and July.
1: That's right, and uh, we're definitely in July now. It's (laughs) hot back here.
0: The next month will get cold again, I guess.
1: Exactly, and then winter lasts for at least 10 months.
0: Uh, The book is Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. Porter Fox is the author. More following this break.
2: Dr. Jose Oberholzer has a message for people living with diabetes. Based on what we have achieved, I'm very, very confident that we will get over those last obstacles. And in your lifetime, there will be a cure for this. A cellular cure for diabetes. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with good reason tomorrow at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour,
1: we salute some legendary world music performers, musicians who've helped bring world music to a global audience, including South Africa's Miriam Makeba, Cuba's Buena Vista Social Club, and the father of Jamaican reggae, Bob Marley. I'm Dan Storper.
2: And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for World Music Legends, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we're talking about a new book, Northland, a 4,000 mile journey along America's forgotten border. The writer is Porter Fox. You can find out more from him, at porterfox.com. He's on Twitter at porter fox. Um, yeah, porter Fox, in this book, you talk, of course, about the, the border. This is, if you include Alaska, the border of Alaska with with Canada. Uh, this is the longest border in the in the world.
1: It sure is. It's five thousand five hundred and twenty-five miles altogether, and um, more than twice as long as the U.S.-Mexico line, um, and um, with vastly fewer headlines about it. Um, It's uh, it's a a border that um, has kind of been taken for granted. Um, It you know was uh, dubbed the world's friendliest. Border for many years, um, but has really been militarized quite heavily since uh, since 9/11, and and that has created a lot of a lot of issues mm-hmm. along the line. To to have a border this this big um, with um, you know that many billions of dollars crossing it every day with our number two trading partner to the north, um, it's um, it's actually it's kind of been a headache for Department of Homeland Security mm-hmm. recently.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of territory. Uh, and I don't know if, the you know, you say increased security since 9-11, but certainly with current administration, uh, all the rhetoric, it seems to be, the southern border, right? We're not hearing President Trump talk about building a wall in the northern border, for example.
1: Um, it, it, absolutely, and it's, it's pretty incredible that, um, you know, Customs and, and Border Protection has, has changed their description to say their number one priority is to keep terrorists out of the U.S. And the only known terrorists to ever come overland into the United States came over the northern border. And over the last three years, uh, FBI reports uh, show that there have been vastly more arrests of terrorist suspects on the northern border than in the south. Um you know, this is, this is something that I write about, and I have a few more articles coming out about this, but this kind of obsession that the U.S. has with its southern border um, and the, you know, very serious illegal immigration issue that, you know, is, is going on down there, um, it kind of overwhelms the northern border and the, the many, many other issues that America's borders have. It's not just illegal immigration um, it is trade. It's millions of U.S. jobs that depend on uh, being able, you know, about goods and services, being able to, to pass freely over these borders. Um, it's about security and about the threat of terrorism and, and also drug trafficking, which is a huge problem on the northern border. You're, you're looking at $56 billion dollars. In uh, the the street value of drugs that are crossing the northern border every year, and um, the Trump administration, most politicians, you know, it's it's like they hardly realize that that we have a northern border. Mm. Um, there there are a few there's there are folks like Senator Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota who has done an amazing job uh, bringing some visibility to the northern border, and past the Northern Border Security Act in 2016, mm-hmm. um, which sort of forced uh, the Department of Homeland Security's hand to uh, publish a study on the northern border, create a new strategy for managing it, which they just did a few weeks ago. Uh, it's a very little fanfare, but at least they did it, and are now uh, just now they have, uh, I believe, six months to come up with a way to implement that plan. So things are happening, but, mm. um, but very slowly.
0: And so, I guess this highlights, as you say, uh, many issues surrounding borders uh, beyond uh, immigration, illegal immigration, which is, uh, I guess, the big focus for for the southern border. Is is there are there are there migrants trying to come across uh, in the northern border?
1: Um, believe it or not, the illegal immigration is going the other way right now. Um, last year, fifteen thousand illegal immigrants snuck into Canada over the northern border. And there's, of course, a flow coming south as well. Um, thousands of illegal immigrants that um, are apprehended. The problem on the, the northern border is that it has been managed with a kind of a southern border mentality. And on the southern border, uh, something like 90 percent of human and drug trafficking actually happens at ports of entry, um, sneaking people and drugs and contraband. In vehicles, um, somehow through a port of entry instead of going through those very desolate sections of, of desert and whatnot. That's different on the northern border. And the northern border, there are so many tree covered, remote places where you can sneak across. You're talking 8,000 foot peaks in the North Cascades, but the line goes right up and over. Waters And in uh, the north woods of Maine, um, obviously all of the waterways, um, the eastern third of the northern border is, is primarily on water. Um, and I, I paddled some of those rivers where you can freely go across the line. There's no actual indication even of where the line is. Um, and back there, border officials have gone on the record of saying they don't know how many people are sneaking across the northern border. They don't know how many drugs are coming across, because even if a remote sensor or camera picks them up, sometimes they can't get there in time. Regularly, they can't get there in time. So those numbers are kind of up in the air right now, which doesn't seem like a a great way to to manage that border.
0: Hmm. You describe uh, historically, and I, I think currently, a lot of interconnectedness with the economy. Uh, you know, across the border on the Northern border. Um, I wonder, wonder how the, the new tariffs will, um, will affect, I imagine they will hit those Northern communities, especially hard.
1: They, they certainly are. It's, um, it's not good for trade. And I, I question how many Americans realize that Canada is our number two trading partner. Um, It. Uh, In in Michigan alone, you're looking at more than $2 billion worth of exports out of that one state bound for Canada that are being targeted by tariffs by Canada now in reaction to the tariffs that we have put on their goods. Right next door in Wisconsin, you're looking at over a billion dollars in exports from that one state that now are looking at being hit by very heavy tariffs. Um, it affects everything from exports, plywood, to tissue paper, to finished steel goods, to bread, to coffee, um, things that these states have produced, exported, and counted on that income for jobs and, and families and, and whatnot. That all of a sudden is, is um, put very much at risk. Um, you're not hearing a whole lot about it. Uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce came out with a study yesterday that shows you state by state kind of who's being affected, um, which is really very helpful. Um, but but it's it's a real it's a real tragedy, and, and um, it definitely needs some more press. I think people need to know, you know, how this is hitting uh, American families in their pocketbooks and at their places of work. And, um, and to really understand that, that A, uh, the tariffs are not going to help our international trade, and certainly with Canada and, and with Mexico, um, and, B, uh, tightening that border um, in the same way that you do along the U.S.-Mexico line is going to hurt trade just as much. Um, there's a, there was a study out um, earlier this year that U.S. and Canadian businesses are losing up to thirty billion dollars annually by delays at border stations. Um, things like the uh, auto business, um, you know, around Detroit. You know, these these play, those cars that are made in America, they cross the line up into Canada and back up to seven times before they're complete. And before the tariffs. You know, you are looking at uh, costs of up to 800 bucks per vehicle, um, and we're talking thousands, thousands of vehicles with just a small delay in the border caused by increased secondary searches, increased, um, you know, questioning, increased denials at the border. Um, you know, there's another study that, you know, that, that studied the uh, the bridge between Windsor, Ontario, and and Detroit. And just a four-hour delay at that bridge cost the, on, the Ontario economy up to $7 million in lost production. Mm-hmm. Just four hours. So there's multiple factors at play here, and, and none of it is good for you know, American businesses and, and jobs right now.
0: I wonder, uh, having immersed yourself in uh, in you know travels through this border, and this is United States and Canada. And this has been a stable, and good relationship. You know, there have been some flare ups. Uh, you know, some trade disputes and and such. But uh, this is an extraordinary moment, isn't it? It's it's um, you know the the president invoked national security to to impose his tariffs. Uh, the Canadian Prime Minister. Uh, was you know expressed uh, outrage. The uh, Trump administration went back to uh, grievances uh, dating back to the uh, War of 1812. It's uh, it's an extraordinary time.
1: It's extraordinary, is right, and it is absolutely ridiculous. Canada does not pose a security threat to the United States. They have been our partner and our ally since the very beginning um it, in fact the united states has drawn up more war plans to invade canada um than practically any other country um over the last you know since the american revolution i mean as late as 1930 when when that infamous war plan red um was drafted up and um, they were they authorized chemical weapons for the attack to to take over canada you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Canada is our number two trading partner, the number one importer of oil, uh, of foreign oil into the U.S. Um, there are so many statistics that prove that, um, you know, there are our, our brothers in arms and, and that we kind of um, stand together on so many things. And uh, the United States, quite frankly, has, has taken them for granted for many years. And Prime Minister Trudeau is um, is calling us out on that and saying, "Well, here's what it here's what it feels like to to not have us, you know, as your partner and and for this border to to not be the friendliest border in the world." And I think it will be a huge wake up call to the U.S., but I think it will be far more damaging to the communities living along the northern border than it will to the rest of the country. And, and once again, you know, that that news is not headlining. The southern border news is still headlining, while these communities that, that create billions of dollars of goods and services headed for Canada are um, are really being hit.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking with Porter Fox. His uh, most recent book is Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. Of course, we're talking about the northern border. Um You write uh, extensively about how the border affects um, Indian country. Um, And I want to quote you, quote um, Joshua Keating, who wrote recently in uh, Politico. Uh, This is this. Stood out at me, and this is at you, on your Twitter feed, at Porter Fox. Here's Joshua Keating. Including trips to Iraq and Somalia, by far the most contentious border crossing experience, and the only one in which I felt like I was being viewed with genuine suspicion was between the United States and Canada. And uh, he's just traveling from one part of, uh, of this uh, tribal land to, to another, but happened to have an international border between it.
1: It's, um, it's a really amazing place. It's the Aquasazne Mohawk Reservation in upstate New York. Um, there's a dozen Indian reservations that are split by the border, and all of them are going through some type of, uh, really, really difficult situation like this. Um, that border that, that he was trying to cross is, um, uh, the tribe is, uh, occupies Cornwall Island, which is in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. And uh, recently, as part of a security upgrade, uh, Canada now requires them, before they go from the U.S. side to Cornwall Island, they have to go from the U.S. to Cornwall Island over another bridge into Canada, go through order check, and then back over that same bridge back to Cornwall Island. Three bridges, up to an hour wait at each bridge when they're taking their kids to school. Now, if a parent, and this has happened many times, is late to school, doesn't want to wait in the line, just takes their kids to school and skips that that second bridge, they have been arrested for aiding and abetting um, an illegal alien, which would be their child. Their car is impounded. They have to pay over $1,000 to get that car back. It is absolutely ridiculous. The Jay Treaty and many other treaties guarantee that Indian nations can cross the border to either hunt on their ancestral hunting ground, fish on the fishing grounds, visit tribal members who, just by chance of where they decided to put this border, live on the other side. Um, You know, when I was on the Passamaquoddy Indian Reservation in northern Maine, um, one of the, uh, the, the uh, oral history um, um, professor, I guess, the oral history guy there, uh, Donald is an absolutely incredible person, told me that um, he said, we don't recognize this border. He said, this border was put there for two nations. It has nothing to do with us. Um, they have been tyrannized by both of these nations for so many years. Um, that one day they walked up onto the border and they just took it over the, the, both border stations. They stood on the bridge, blocked traffic, didn't show any identification, and they just stood there. And they said, we don't recognize this line. Um, you know, that was after they had been um, using, uh, passports became mandatory for all tribal members. Their tribal ID didn't work anymore. Um, to a lot of people, they're like, oh, I'll just go get a passport. That's not easy uh, for a member of a sovereign nation within the United States. Um, it's expensive. It's time-consuming. Um, some folks don't have cars. You know, it's um, some folks don't have internet. Believe it or not, um, so it's um, it's it's really kind of a tragic situation. And and again, what what you know, scholars are kind of calling the Mexicanization of the northern border. Has created this uh, very very strict policies for crossing, and uh, probably has has hit um, the Native American tribes along that line more than anybody. Mm.
0: You uh, you spent some time out with the uh, uh, you know, the folks at Standing Rock, the Sioux Reservation out there, the uh, standoff over the pipeline, and uh, that has ramifications, right? Uh, effects from from the border.
1: Uh, it sure does. I mean, it's... Um, It's very close to the border. It's not right on it, Um, but the Lakota Sioux were a Northland tribe, and it lived on both sides of the line historically. Um, Before uh, Americans kind of moved west and and began to settle their land, Uh, they controlled 740,000 square miles uh, between Colorado, Nebraska, Minnesota, Utah, and the uh, and the Canadian border. Um, you know that that's today that territory represents one fifth of the United States, and um, you know that they, they were they were very connected to the drawing of that border. In fact, that tribe was there when surveyors in the early eighteen hundreds uh, walked across the northern plains uh, with their compasses and. Survey tools and, and chains and, and measuring devices and whatnot. Um, and they sort of watched, um, you know, disinterestedly as these folks moved across the line and put up border monuments. And, and um, you know, and then one day that border was enforced. And they were like, well, you're not allowed to go to the other side of the line, um, which is kind of ridiculous to, you know, to tribes that have been living in that area for hundreds or even thousands of years. Um, but the Sandy Rock protest camp itself was, was fascinating and inspiring. It was a real moment in history. And um, I, I wrote the entire book based on where that northern border went. Uh, in other words, I was following the northern border when I heard on the radio that two highways in North Dakota had been shut down on, right ahead on my route and um, that's when I looked up the situation, read a little bit about it, um, called the sheriff's department and said, you know, what's going on with these highways? Are they going to open up? And was told, you know, you really shouldn't go there today, which is probably the last thing you want to say to a journalist. So I immediately found my way there and, um, and stayed over and included it in the book.
0: Mm. Uh, by the way, before we go to another break, um, in you write about in North Dakota, uh, the thing's the only state in the nation that has their uh, most of the roads, all the roads in concrete. I guess because of the the they cold.
1: Cast, yeah, they cast their roads in concrete because the the temperature swings and the just the weather in general is so brutal on those roads that they were they were having to repave them like every other year uh so they they just cast them in concrete so mm. that um they can at least get a few more years out of them
0: and you say in the book that uh, uh you were uh you were looking maybe for other modes of transportation but the locals told you no we we drive you 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 should drive <laughs> right <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's right it's, you know when it's 30 miles to get to the nearest gas station you're 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 not taking a horse
0: <laughs> yeah uh, that's certainly uh, uh certainly true i want to quote this uh, let's see. People drive across the northern plains, they load up minivans, pickup trucks, and sedans, tune in a talk show, and eat up the miles. The road is the link, it's the conduit for families, public services, and business. When your neighbor lives 10 miles away and fresh milk and eggs are 40, you depend on it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, you sure do. And then, uh, and the, and the highways are still empty, believe it or not.
0: Hmm. Uh, and that, uh, uh, I guess uh, pretty much anybody in the in the West that that really resonated with me, you you know you put on some radio, you put on something, and you eat up the miles is what you do. So uh let's let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about the the land, some uh, beautiful riding here, some uh, wonderful experiences with the with the open uh, miles of prairie, uh, the the Great Lakes, the rivers in the Northeast. Um, A lot of beautiful writing here. I want Porter Fox to tell me about that. Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. Porter Fox is the author. More following this break. Think for just a second about the economic impact of the family road trip. These great chains were built on on people traveling America's highways. I'm Kai Rizdal. Oh, those road trips do still happen, just not like they used to. That story, of the day's numbers from Wall Street, and the rest of the day's business news as well, next time on Marketplace.
2: Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. On the next Radio Lab. What would the world look like without mosquitoes? Totally awesome. From mosquitoes that suck. The Lone Star Tick. It's like something from Alien. The ticks that latch.
1: <gasps> oh,
2: goodness me. I hate you.
1: <laughs> I hate <laughs> you.
2: Could those freaky little insects actually be doing us a favor? They are the <laughs> resistance fighters on behalf of the rainforest. That's on the next Radio Lab. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Porter Fox. His latest book is called Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. You can find out more from him at porterfox.com, also on Twitter, at Porter Fox. You can reach us with your comment or question here. We have about 15 minutes left in the conversation. Uh, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Porter Fox, before we jump into uh, the rest of our discussion, I was fascinated to learn, I I don't think I knew this, so it's not remembering, Um, Wallace Stegner grew up in the borderlands on, on the Canadian side.
1: Absolutely. Um, I, again, I discovered that myself when I was driving across um, Montana and, and uh, was reading about the history of the state and whatnot. Um, you know, he, uh, he wrote an amazing uh, memoir about his, his time growing up there called Wolf Willow. And uh, it really covered a lot of the history that I had been writing about. And um, I'm a big Stegner fan, of course. And um, it was uh, it was really cool to, to visit his his hometown and and see what um, you know what people call the uh, medicine line country up there.
0: I'd forgotten that. So uh, yeah, Wolf Willow uh, I'll have to go go and read that. Um, and his father apparently was a wandering man, and uh, he <laughs> well, Stegner spent time in an orphanage when he was four, and uh, lived in an abandoned dining car. I'll have to go back and read some of that history maybe formed <laughs> some of his writing
1: Yeah, yeah, he had quite a life. He was, uh, they would actually go and farm right on the U.S.-Canada border in the summers and they did, uh, you know, a lot of itinerant folks would do that because the, the jurisdiction there was still kind of being worked out, even in the early 1900s um, so you could go kind of take over a um, yeah, maybe a 10-20 acre lot of land and farm it and and uh, get a crop off it and then get the hell out of there before the mountains showed
0: up hmm. I wonder if you tell me a little bit about uh, the, the difficulties uh, the surveyors had it's decided we're going to have a border so the negotiations right um, but for much of it it's waterways so you have to it the, the border actually is the deepest part of the uh, of the river uh, and I was interested in reading about uh, Minnesota's uh, what, boundary waters. Just, just an incredible feat of uh, difficulties there uh, in surveying that, that country, for example.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was kind of amazing to me that I, I had never read about the people who actually drew the line. You know, when you, you look at a map, you see the shape of America. It, it, it is America. It, it's such an, an iconic shape now. And it didn't used to be there. Um, it was, you know, it took until as late as um, the 1920s before part of this line was actually drawn. And the last bit was drawn through the boundary waters of Minnesota. It's, um, it's just such remote country with, you know, you're talking about neck deep wetlands, just super muddy, marshy um, regions where you have to kind of measure and, and get readings and, and try to figure out exactly where you are on the line and then build a monument that won't wash away. Um, you know, they would they would sometimes wait until the winter time so that the wetlands would freeze over and they could walk across it um, and, and mark it that way. But if anybody spent any time in northern Minnesota, you realize how unbelievably cold it is. Um, so no matter how they did it, it was it was incredibly uh, incredibly difficult coming you know off of uh, Lake Superior. The, uh, the border jumps goes through four of the five Great Lakes, and from Superior, um, it jumps up into the boundary waters uh, via the Pigeon River. And um, as you can imagine, that massive watershed of the U.S. Northwest kind of coming through. Um, Eastern Minnesota and, and emptying into uh, Lake Superior is very, very rough country. Um, it, it's one of the roughest portages you can do going from Lake Superior up into the boundary waters. And they had to do it with all of their gear, um, marking out exactly where the border passed, finding the deep water mark of these rivers and, and lakes and whatnot. Um, it, was, it was really rough, and the, and the reason they, they picked that those water routes is that when England and uh, the U.S. were negotiating uh, kind of the end of the Revolutionary War and where the border should go, the fur trade was so massive at that point, um, creating the equivalent of billions of dollars in, in today's money, that they mandated that all of the waterways, um, through the Boundary Waters, through the Great Lake, through the St. Lawrence, um, be shared. Uh, so the line goes right down the middle of these tiny little rivers, and uh, that allowed both countries to, to be able to use them.
0: I want to have you tell me a bit about uh, some of your travels, maybe beginning at the, at, at the beginning. Uh, you've been used to, I imagine, life on the water growing up in, in Maine and with your dad being a boat builder. Um, but uh, what difficulties did you encounter uh, as you set off on that first part of your journey? You, I guess it's by canoe, right? You're, you're on waterways.
1: By canoe, yeah, and I, I had explored that, that part of Maine um, since I was a kid, but not that close to the border. Uh, we, we were a little bit further inland, and um, it was really amazing how wild the country got the closer to the border you got. Um, I, I think in the book, I, I liken it to uh, dust that gathers up against the wall. You know, when when you can't cross over at a certain place, um, there's kind of no reason to put a road in there or build a house in there or a business or whatnot. And so the land that's, that's right up close to the northern border is incredibly pristine and wild. And, you know, when I was there in uh, early October, there was just nobody. I mean, I didn't see people for days. And uh, it was beautiful and and really um, kind of uh, lovely to to see that places like this still exist in the U.S. Um, It was a little scary at the same time, Um, thinking what would happen if, you know, if I got hurt or or if, uh, I mean, there's also no cell phone signal. There's, I mean, you're totally isolated. Um, and, uh, so it was, it was a little worrisome in that sense. Uh, but when I got in the canoe and, and started moving through that country, uh, it was just exotic. It, that's the only word to describe it. It was really like, like nothing I've ever seen in the U S uh, maybe a campsite here and a campsite there. But, you know, besides that you, you have beavers that are swimming up to your canoe and around you because they just haven't seen that many people. Um, you know, you have these incredibly dark nights. There's no light pollution. There's no light at all. And it, it really blew my mind how, how truly remote it was. And, um, you know, when I busted the shear pin on a, on a little outboard I was using to... Uh, to go upstream on the Saint Croix and cross the lakes, so I was really stranded, and and uh, I almost uh, had an unfortunate situation of nearly flipping the canoe on one of the big lakes when it started uh, really blowing wind and and had some big waves to negotiate, and, and that was that was scary too. I was I was truly truly on my own, kind of the way maybe the some of the first explorers were.
0: And there's a uh, I can't remember there's uh, there's a. A rule of thumb at 50 degree weather you can swim 50 yards or something before you freeze up and you were thinking about that in the in the canoe when you when you lost that power uh, tell me about, about the great lakes i think many of us have not been on the great lakes may never get there what uh, t- tell us a little bit about the great lakes
1: uh it's it's, it's absolutely stunning um it's believe it or not kind of Reminded me of Utah and some places where I, I used to live up in Jackson Hole and, and travel to Utah quite a bit. And you know, those nights when you're driving down a, you know, a remote road, um, you know, crossing the prairie or the desert or whatnot, and all you see is black out in front of you. And it, it looks like an ocean. And that is exactly how the Great Lakes look. There is just zero definition on the horizon. It's a, it's a massive, Ocean. Um, at night, it's, it's pure black, and during the day, uh, you see weather coming from 100 miles away. Um, you know, I I was on a freighter. I, I uh, hitched a ride on a 740-foot freighter um, that was taking iron ore out west and uh, bringing back grain um, from Thunder Bay, Ontario, um, back east. And uh, we covered. Uh, you know, we went from. Montreal to close to Duluth, Minnesota in six days on that freighter, and um, took the Welland Canal up around Niagara Falls, climbing the hill, they call it, um, and uh, it, was, it was truly incredible. I, I had only seen the Great Lakes from an airplane before. Um, to be on them, uh, it, it was just like being in a, in a different world.
0: Tell me a little bit what stands out to you from your travels across the, uh, is it called the medicine line? That's the 49th parallel, just yeah, a straight line.
1: Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, that was that was near country at first, you know, um, around Glasgow and um, northeastern Montana. Um, it's, the, it's, it's another uh, record for the northern border. It's the longest straight border in the world, the uh, 49th parallel goes from Lake of the Woods in Minnesota straight across to Bellingham, Washington. Um, you know, it was a border that was drawn um, really in haste to try to avoid a, a conflict with British Canada. Um, it was sort of during the 54-40 or fight years uh, with President Polk, and uh, and it was, uh, they, they finally decided to uh, just draw it along the 49th and so be it. Well, when they did that, that That line cuts right through the middle of these 8,000-foot peaks in the North Cascades and in in, uh, Glacier National Park um, through forests, river valleys, watersheds, um, really making kind of um, water issues very complicated about who has rights to what river. Um, Some rivers start in Canada, swing into the U.S., swing back into Canada. Um, it, It gets extremely complicated and, and honestly very difficult to travel you know when, when I was back east I could follow the river but out on the 49th I mean you know this line is just going straight up over these mountains and then straight down through a, a very impenetrable forest and and then across these incredibly hot dry northern plains know um, it was it was
0: wild. We just have about a minute left. I wonder. I was interested to to read that one of your goals in this journey was to visit the Northland before it changed for good. I wonder what uh, what's what's top of mind. What do you worry will change, or I guess maybe well, it good change?
1: The, with the, yeah, with more security along the line, it, it's changing very quickly. Um, there's many, many more border agents up there. It's very hard to cross the northern border these days. Um, but like I said before, it's also one of the last swaths of undeveloped land in the U.S., and it's really just a matter of time um, before folks, like, you know, look, look in the Wasatch in Utah, look up in the Tetons and, you know, around Jackson Hole, and, you know, suddenly these remote mountainous territories are kind of like prized areas to develop and build million-dollar mansions and create new towns and, and to develop, and, and it's, it's happening in the Northlands as well. Um, and some folks are kind of crowded out of other parts of the U.S. They're, they're arriving in Whitefish, Montana, and up in Bellingham, and, and even up in northern Maine.
0: The book is Northland, A 4,000-Mile Journey Along America's Forgotten Border. It's just out, and the author is uh, Porter Fox. You can find out more on him at porterfox.com. Porter Fox, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks a lot, Tom.
0: And uh, tomorrow, of course, 4th of July, we'll have a special program uh, for you. And I hope you'll uh, join us again for Access Utah on uh, Thursday. And behind the headlines, of course, on Fridays. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Attorney General Jeff Sessions says people fleeing gangs or domestic violence no longer qualify for asylum.
2: Asylum was never meant to alleviate all problems, even all serious problems, that people face every day all over the world. So where does this leave the Central Americans being held in federal custody? An asylum reality check this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 with Shalane Smith-Needham on Utah Public Radio.
0: I'm Peter O'Dowd. How do you know if your roof can survive a hurricane? Get FM Global's Natural Hazards Lab to test it.
2: We're gonna crank up the wind on it a little bit more.
0: Oh! Geez. failure huh how insurance companies prep for hurricane season next time on here and now
2: join us this morning at 11 on utah public radio
0: Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.